You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I gotta tell you something, people. I usually do a little banter, talk a little bit, but today I'm not. I'm coming straight to our guest because he is—he's had such a fascinating career, and he has a his band, Cutting Crew, has this great new box set that came out. And my guest is Nick Van Eed. How you doing, Nick? Good afternoon, Steve. Yeah, very well, thank you. Good to talk to you. Yeah, we people we had we had a little snafu on Zoom, so we <laughs> had to call him back and. Uh, the box set. I want to hear about it. Uh, it's Cutting Crew. It's Ransomed, Healed, Restored, Forgiven. It's with an orchestra. Tell me about this because it's it fascinates me. Thank you. Um, well, I mean, releasing a box set at my age, good heavens, you know. I mean, when I was a kid, um, you know, when we bought vinyl, you, I suppose the equivalent would be like a, a triple album, wouldn't it, you know? And uh, these were quite magnificent things. You had to really save up your money for them. Well, um, yeah, it's a box set. I don't think there's any, any padding in it. It's, um, it's me. It's me and my guitarist, Gareth, who are now essentially cutting crew. And we signed a deal to record my top 10 cutting crew songs over the years, recorded with the Prague Philharmonic Orchestra. And uh, boy, oh boy, it was a journey. I mean, I'm, I'm over the moon, honestly, with, with how it's ended up. But if you uh, can imagine me living in the south of England, uh, Gareth living in Manchester in the north of England, the, the orchestra in Czech Republic, uh, the drummer was, was in Russia, and the, uh, the, the engineer was in Slovenia. So I guess that's how you make records these days. Now, how do you... You know, you've you've done your songs. You've written them. They're popular. Do you have to decompose them to do them with a Philharmonic Orchestra? How does that work from your viewpoint of make, recording the song? Sure, good, good question. Well, first of all, I mean, there's some couple, two or three pretty big songs on there, and um, you know, my dad always used to say, you know, if you don't, it ain't broke, don't fix it, or you know, whatever it is. Um, so it's quite daunting to deal with stuff that has been recorded only one way for 30 years and it's in people's memories and, and you know, lots of, lots of special uh, thoughts to these songs. So it was quite daunting, um, but we, we pulled it off. What we tried to do was be faithful to the, to the song where we could. So some of the songs are almost um, exactly the same inverted commas arrangement, but with you know, loads of strings on. And yeah, there's three or four on there where we've undressed them totally. There are two songs where it's just me and the orchestra. Uh, Steve, that was, you know, in singing live for 40 years, that, that probably was one of the most emotional experiences of my life. It really was. Um, because those lyrics mean a lot more different things to a 62-year-old guy than it did to a 28-year-old guy. Yeah, I mean, and what, was it because the lyrics was emotional or just the whole setting? Because, you know, it's something that whenever you hear a song with an orchestra, it, it just has that feeling, like Wang Chung had done one uh, with an orchestra, yeah. and it just, it adds to it, and you listen to it in a different way. What was going through your mind when, it, when as you said, it was so emotional, what are you thinking when you're going, things have changed? Is it, is it hard to concentrate, or do you just get a burst of energy? Yeah, I did. I, I, you know, I'm not just making it up. Uh, with most of my vocals were two or three takes, so I enjoyed it. It didn't take long, but I know what you're saying. There's a subtlety to this, and that is that, um, you know, when you when you re-record something with strings, 
my look, let's, let's just get this straight. When I first got off of the deal, I said, I'd love to do this, but I do not want anything to sound like Saturday Night TV in the 1970s, you know, when you would have an orchestra scratching around in the background. <laughs> What's the point, you know? Uh, let's be a bit brave. So I would speak with the arranger. He would send me these great big, you know, 18-page string arrangements, and I'd, I'd pretend I could read them. <laughs> and I would say to him, yeah, I, you know, I think I, like, I know what's going on here, but we would try and choose composers that we would arrange it in the vein of. So, um, for example, broadcast is a song about me as a teenager listening on the shortwave F uh, AM radio, listening to all the weird shit going on. And um, So that was very much me growing up. So we chose Ron Williams, who's a very pastoral um, English composer, and, and on and on. So the songs had a kind of a, a finger pointing from me uh, as to the style of the arrangements. Um, but then when you put those headphones on and stand next to an orchestra, yeah, the, I mean, like, I just died in your arms, those lyrics. I've lost a father, I've lost a brother, I've lost my, you know, original guitarist, Kevin. Um, so there are emotions that come up, and yet also it brings on sort of hope. Uh, you know, the, the lyrics can mean so many things. So, yeah, it was a real journey. Now, do you, as an artist... Do you worry how your fans are going to accept this? Because it's one of those things, people are going to love it because someone like me loves a different take on something. But then, excuse the language, but there's just a bunch of assholes out there who bitch about everything. I mean, did you did anything go through your mind when you said, you know, Died in Your Arms was such a huge, huge hit. Everyone knows it. We've known it. You know, people my age, I'm 56. We've heard it for years. Did that worry you that it might irritate some people? Or did you say, screw it, this is where I am now, and this is who I am? No, definitely the, the latter, screw it. Um, but we were careful. Um, like I said, it's a fine balance. Um, there were, there were, as I said, there were songs on there which were very undressed. And uh, um, when we released it, uh, I've had nothing but you know remarkable feedback. This is you know, one of the best-reviewed, loved albums I've released in, in many, many years. So... I think we got the balance right, but yeah, I do remember with um, um, with I've been in love before. There's a big key change in it that uh, was never there before. You've got to remember, Steve. Th these are versions of songs that I've been digging for 35 years and tweaking. You know, every year it just gets tweaked a little bit more to what I consider to be you know the perfect arrangement for a rock band. So some people who only bought the record all those years ago, they've never heard these new versions. So um, they are tried and tested um, new new beasts, if you know what I mean. That fascinates me, the tweaking part. Tell me more about that. Is it something that when you're on stage, you, you feel that it should go a little bit of a different way? Or is it something that when you hear it, because, you know, I'm sure you hear died in your arms if you go out because it's played all the time, is it something where you go, I should, I should make this better? How do you how, explain the tweaking part? Because that's fascinating to me. Yeah, uh, well, a lot of that happened fairly early on, and I would have to say, out in your country on, on the road in the states, we were we were always a little bit misunderstood. And I don't mean this in a who is me. I just mean that we had this record. You know, it was a kind of poppy rock record, but the, the musicians we were always a rock band. But hey, we, we just sort of fell down the cracks into that pop a, a, AOL world. So when we played it live, we were really kicking. And um, it was obvious, you know, the, the 14, 15-year-old girls down the front were, um, you know, a little confused as to this band really knocking it out. So bit by bit, we 
realise we could play harder. But also you watch you watch how it's going and um, over those that, that year or two we constantly toured in the States, we were realising that we'd made the album as you did in the eighties with so many sequences, you know, where you'd have um, you know, percussion going along and fake percussion, um, and the the little sound effects being triggered off. And we in the end we just said fuck it and we turned them all off and just stripped back to the five piece band and that's when you start stretching, you know, you know, flexing your muscles a little bit and, and these new uh, versions come in. Now, you re-record them and there's the, you know, the, 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 the deluxe edition box set features, which has the CDs. It has the uh, a seven-track CD single. What exactly is a seven-track single? Seven-track for us people who aren't musicians because we're a lot of us, you know, we hear shit and we're like, what the hell? What, what does it mean when you say a seven-track CD single? Sure, I love I love I love stories about songs. That's that's why I interview people because I'm not a musician and I love to hear what the hell's going on. Berlin in winter, which is 
one of the best reviewed songs on the album and a big fan uh, hit. And basically, it's a story about a guy who, you know, as a young teenager, he was sequestered by the communists back then to be part of building the wall. And then he lived through the atrocities of, um, you know, the, the 60s and 70s when the people were getting shot trying to escape. But he lived long enough to be there on the 9th of November, 1989, and see it fall. And it's a very, very beautiful song. See, that's great, because, you know, that's what I love. I love hearing, you know, when you hear a story about a song because so many times we don't and, and I think it's music lovers who it really interests them and now for you you know you're a musician when you heard the final mix of this new box set Ransomed Healed Restored Forgiven were you a little scared to see what it's going to sound like or, or did you just sit there and did you sit down and enjoy it or what was your feedback to your inner self yeah I enjoyed it Nicely put together the, um, the, the 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 order of events. You know, back in the old days, I keep sounding like an old git. I'm sorry. You know, back in the old days when we made albums, the running order of songs was very important to me. Um, the you know the keys of songs and the tempo of songs, and sometimes we cutting crew, we'd have little segues in between songs. So putting an album together, compiling it was important. So I think we got that right. First of all. Um, I've got a trusty old pair of Sennheiser cans that I know everything would sound either bad or good on, and it sounded just magnificent, so rich. And, um, yeah, my, my 22-year-old daughter, um, excuse me, 22, um, living in the past, a 32-year-old daughter, um, she dig it, my mum digs it, she's 86, the wife loves it, and I, I yeah, we, we pulled it off. I'm, I'm extremely proud of it, extremely proud. Now, you've had such a long career. And you've been very successful. How did you, how did you get into music? What what was the start? Did you always knew you wanted to be a musician? You wanted to sing, or how did you start this fascinating past path? Yeah, well, it's been a journey. Yeah, um, it's been what uh, forty over forty years now, and I've not that it means anything at all. But you know, in those forty years, I've consistently you know either had a proper major label, record label, or publishing deal. So. Yeah, I've, I've, I've dodged the bullets and, and, and I'm still out there doing it. Um, when it started, uh, my granddad was, during the Second World War, he worked on the railways and they were never sent to the front to fight. You know, they had to keep the railways working. So he stayed home and uh, he formed his own dance band. He was the lead violinist in the Contiki dance band. And uh, uh, he told me stories about never be him and about three other guys in a room full of women because all the guys were abroad. Um, so he, had, he, had, he was a musician. My fa- his son, my father, um, he used to be like a Saturday night DJ, so there were, there were always new records coming into the house. So I was flooded that way. Um, but it was school, really, when I went to the, 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 old, the old Harry Potter-style grammar schools were just being faded out and uh, new sexy young comprehensive schools where everybody was on the same level and um, we had great music and drama teachers and I used to write the songs for the school productions you know and and apparently they weren't shit (laughs) (laughs) they probably weren't far off but uh, it gave me enough confidence to keep writing I mean I can keep going with this story Steve the next thing was I'm working in a operating theatre in a hospital and in Thursday evenings I used to play for the doctors and nurses in the local pub and one night in 
towering guy in his sort of mohair coat. And he listened to me playing my cover songs and maybe a few originals. And he threw his card onto the amplifier and said, give me a call Monday morning. And I just thought, yeah, thanks, mate. And I looked at it and his name was Chaz Chandler. And Chaz was the manager of Jimi Hendrix and used to be the bass guitarist in The Animals. And that was it. That was the start. I, I got signed. I was in Poland playing with his band Slade two weeks later. Now, what is that like? I mean, you're a young guy. You were just working in a hospital, and all of a sudden, you're on tour. I mean, how do you even comprehend that? And it, it happens so fast. I mean, were you just blown away, or were you like, I mean, what 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 do you think when that that happens? You have to be. It has to be like a fantasy. It was dreamlike. Um, you know, I'm sure you've heard it from many of your interviewees that it's very very much in the music business. Nothing, 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 nothing. Explosion. You know, and that's what happened then. That's what happened with Cutting Crew. Um, but back then, yeah, I just sort of hung on tight. I mean, I was playing in front of twenty thousand people at these beautiful amphitheaters out in. In, uh, Poland and you know girls were throwing roses onto the stage and English boy we love you and, and I was like well this is this is cool well what you have to remember is Slade were one of the hardest rocking skinhead followed bands in the world and they said to me after the tour do you want to come to the, uh, the British tour with us Nick you know we'll all be amazed now we've got the same manager and I said oh, I'd love to the very first night on stage, I got hit by a bottle thrown by a skinhead. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're you're a you're a solo act now. Now, when do you decide to join a band? Pretty soon after that bottle hit, needed <laughs> 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 um, something to hide behind. I mean, the roadies would you know put electricity into the microphone. I would sit on a stool when I was a you know one man band and back slowly. I mean, they, it, was, it was a lot of fun, a lot of initiation, and I survived, you know, and, and they became my best friends. But it was during a few of those tours when I just said, come on, this is, this is pretty lonely. And so we formed a band, and they were called The Drivers, and uh, we went on to, um, amazingly, get signed to a Canadian label who flew us out to Toronto, and we recorded an album with my best friend, Terry Brown, who is very famous for all the Rush albums. So you record that... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I say, and the story continues. Would you like to hear more? Oh, yeah. I, this, I love this stuff. This is why I interview you guys. Because it's something that... It's, 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 it's history. It is. I mean, some of it you can't... You know, it, it sounds improbable, and that's the music business, isn't it? Um, the, the allure of the music business is like no other. It, it always has been, and it still is. I don't think even being an actor or, or maybe a porn star, I suppose it would happen quite quickly, but, um, it, you know, it, it's that instant instant ability to just suddenly ping off into another tra trajectory by being um, discovered. Uh, it will always be uh, the biggest allure ever out there. So, yeah, we were, so now I've finished with Chaz, um, we're out there, three-piece, skinny, sort of, squeeze meets XTC meets Freddy and the Dreamers. <laughs> it was pretty wild. And um, everything was played at the most ferocious pace. And um, we were playing in a little tiny pub. 
up again in the middle of nowhere and uh, a one-eyed, one-legged Jewish attorney popped in for a beer on his way home from to London and he watched us and we heard him in the interval um, calling home to, to, to his Canadian partner on a phone box, you know, where you put the coins in? Right. And we could hear him going, thunk, thunk. Marty, 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 it's Bernie here, yeah. Marty, can you hear me? I've just seen fucking God. I think they're called the drivers. <laughs> so we're standing in the next room, peeing our pants, you know, undiscovered nobodies. And within two months, we are living in a um, five-star hotel in Toronto, recording with Terry Brown. So, you know, these things do friggin' happen. So, the drivers, why just split? Um, we, we did the um, Bernard, so that was Bernie, okay? We did the Bernie uh, life in Toronto for a couple of years, all on dirty mafia money, all are coming up from Florida. Um, we were living the life of Riley, flying around making videos. Nobody had even heard of us. And then one day we realized that um, the, the record company had been shut down um, by the federal government. Um, but we'd had our good ride. Um, but towards the end of that, we are playing in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And our support band had this wonderful guy called Kevin Scott with Michael on guitar synthesizer. And that was the day I, I fell in love with him totally, him and his playing, and we said, okay, if ever your band splits up or my band splits up, let's put something together. And a year later, we formed Cutting Crew. Now, how did you? What, what does Cutting Crew mean? Because you know, it's it's like anything. You're English, like in in America, cutting means like when I was younger. Oh, we're cutting school. We're not going to school. And then there's all different. Tech terminologies, and I know in, in England and in America we have different meanings for different things. What does cutting crew mean? Right, I'll come back to that in 20 seconds. I have to tell you a lovely story that it, it goes along with that because cutting, yeah, I know that cutting schools when you when you don't when you're dodging school, yeah. Yeah. Well, my daughter just took a job teaching foreign languages, sorry, teaching English to foreign students, and she's teaching this Russian girl because bit of a bitch by all accounts and she wanted to learn she wanted to learn the idioms of English language and she said what is this flogging a dead horse and my daughter panicked completely never heard it before in her life so she said it's it's when you have a bad horse and you sell it flogging and so the girl went off and thank you very much and then she told me this I said no 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 it, flogging means to, to whip Like the expression and hey presto. 
it it sticks and it's something that you always remember that name because it is different and you know as I said you know I talk to musicians who say sometimes it's it's so hard to come up with a name because you know someone told me the reason they picked one name uh, was because it was one that not everybody hated and so it's it's one of those things that it needs a good good uh, name so you have your name now what's your game plan once you have your name you've met your uh, your your writing partner you know you're just a guy you know is you're going to work with how do you start getting cutting crew's name out there well this is that going back to that you know trajectory thing i mean my experience up until then had been um lots of little moments where i jumped up the ladder but in the end just hard work gigging getting out there and playing live and that's what we were i was a really good live singer and kevin was the consummate live guitarist but we just thought, let's try and do it different this time. So we recorded some pretty good demos. Um, and in those days, you could send them to the record companies. I mean, any younger people listening now, you know, that you can't even do that. It, they, they have to all go through a lawyer in case somebody steals something or anything. But back in my day, you could send the cassettes or whatever it was, you know, up to the label. We got some interest. Um, we found a couple of boys in London that were great players, great musicians, very important as well. They... They kind of, they had the gear, they had, they had a PA, it's spinal tap, isn't it? <laughs> um, and we had, we, so we were actively throwing together a live band of really great players, but we weren't a real band. And, you know, just what on earth do you think happened next? You know, we got a record deal, and um, within 10 months, it was released, and, you know, the rest is, the rest is history. What is it like when you put an album out, and your first album did so well, and you had a hit single? I mean, did you, I, I mean, I know no one ever expects that, but when you put it out, could you even fathom how big the album would become? I mean, it went gold in three countries, it went silver in the UK, you had a top ten hit. I mean, what were your expectations when you put that first album out? Well, I think mine were pretty, you know... Seasoned, um, don't take anything for granted musician. I know definitely Kevin was. You could never get him to be excited about anything. Um, the record company were jumping up and down. They, they knew they had a, a very... Listen, the song's good. The song's probably very good, whether, whether you like it or not. And I'm quite prepared to accept there's probably you know, 50 million people in this world who despise I Just Died in Your Arms. But it's a song that will always work in some kind of situations. And... Um, then the next stage, Steve, as you know, it's no, no good just having a little Hey Jude sitting on your desk. You've got to make it into a fantastic record. And that was a struggle. Kerry Brown came in and we eventually nailed it. Um, and then, of course, you know, you've got to get the right video. Then you got to get everything had to click. And it clicked. And it just went berserk. Um, we were, you know, Johnny Carson's show, Radio City Music Hall, Grammy nominations. It was all then. We had two years up there. Um, and I think I remember enjoying it. I mean, sadly, I have to say that poor Kevin, who I've mentioned many times, folks, sorry, he's not with us anymore. He died of cancer 14 years ago. Um, he was the guy that used to sit in the corner with his cigarette, just, just watching everything going on. He remembers everything. He'd be much more fun to interview than me. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, how did you, what is Died in Your Arms about? From the songwriter's standpoint, what, what is that song about? Well, this is 
you know, been asked a thousand times and it's kind of grown legs and arms and become almost like mythology. And I, I've had mischief with it over the years. I've made up lies. <laughs> I've had, you know, it's been, it's been one of those questions. Um, basically, um, I was with a girl. We split up. We got back together for one night. I woke up in the morning and he, you know, I said those words, wrote it down on a bit of paper and wrote the song within a week. Um, it happened. Um, may not be the most tasteful of stories, but it happened, and uh, we got back together, and um, she, you know, we we were we had a baby um, a, a year, two years later, I think. So actually, we're not together anymore, but um, yeah, it was a it was a big night. Now. What was your take? What was your impression of making videos? Because I get, I get, you know, some musicians, like actors, you know, they love being on set. They're used to it. But some musicians just hated making videos. Some loved it. What was your, what was your feeling about making videos? Yeah, back then, I hated it. Um, I've done some recently for this album, and I've really enjoyed it because there's a relaxation about how you feel in your own body and, and all that. Back then, I was so uptight about what I should look like, what I shouldn't look like. Did I have to overact? Did I, you know, I've been, I've been a front man in a rock band for 10 years, and then they put a camera in front of you, and suddenly you start to second-guess everything. Um, that's probably more about my hang-ups than, than video-making, but, oh, no, I mean, Kevin hated them. He would just despise them. Now, tell you a story, right? We... We had a, a number one record. Um, we had, a, I think, we sold about three and a half million albums, and we came back with the second album. And uh, we were asking, you know, suddenly we had a bit of power. You know, we we're we're the hit band. So Kevin said, "I'm going to take charge of videos this time." So we um, recruited a, a video director, and he was an Australian. And instead of him coming to London to shoot us. Nah, come on down to Australia. Come down to Sydney. We'll do it down there. So we flew the whole fucking band down to Australia with girlfriends and record companies. It was just obscene. When I got there, he shot the entire video inside a warehouse. (laughs) (laughs) Now that is the 80s at its most obscene with the amount of money that was spent. Um, so, So A, it's going on your tab. But the second story is that this is the one that really upset Kevin a lot, and that was, when you think you just get a little bit of power after having had a, you know, golden three million albums. So uh, Kevin put together an idea for our song called Between a Rock and a Hard Place, of this gathering album, and David Hogan was the director, and we'd used him before, a great director, and Kevin sent this idea about, you know, very British, if you can imagine the British sense of humour, against an American A&R guy's sense of humour. Um, we wanted it to kind of make fun really of the fact that, you know, we're not really some super big rock band, which is what they wanted us depicted as. So Kevin had all these little bits where, you know, the, the camera pulls out and you can see that the, the, the extras are just four people and then there's a guy with his dog, you know, and um, instead of it faking a live gig, lots of little moments like that. Cinema verite amongst the, 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 the fakery of... of of MTV, yeah? So David Hogan said, this is fantastic, I love it, let's do this, let's really ham it up. And they, we got over there, the record company had got involved, and it was all back to girls with big tits and, um, you know, long-range, long-range lenses of me looking gorgeous. And, it, you know, it's just disappointing. 
Well, it's crazy because, you know, videos were like that. And it's so funny. And I'm glad you made videos for your latest uh, project because, you know, as an 80s guy, I remember when MTV came on the first time. And, you know, you still remember those videos. I mean, you're talking, you know, it's, um, as I said, I'm 56. You're talking, I still remember videos. And everybody had MTV on, at least in America, all the time. Like, if you were in the basement. Running in the background, yeah. Running yeah. in the background, wasn't it? And it was, it was like a soundtrack, and it broke so many bands. Now, for you, you may not remember, um, sometimes artists do, sometimes they don't. Do you remember the first time you heard Died in Your Arms on the radio? Yeah, yeah, I do clearly. I do clearly. Um, we, we... We'd finished the album. We had, you know, famously, as they say, you know, we had a little tiny window. Um, and I think probably we had about four or five days before we came back to start promoting it. But it was just released as a single in Britain. In Britain, this is. And I remember driving from where I live, which is sort of southeast England, all the way down the southwest to a beautiful county called Cornwall, which is all, you know, beautiful um, sandy beaches, with my brother and his family. And... I think on that nine-hour journey on our national pop station, you know, you've got to get your head around that, Steve. We're, we're, the, the, can you imagine the power of that radio station? It's the national station with 60 million people living in the country. Um, so it was played, I think, seven times, and I remember thinking, oh, dear God, I think something's happening. And, you know, my whole life had been just... Um, medium success or, you know, lots of fun, lots of substances, lots of girls and all that, but this suddenly, on that journey, I remember thinking, holy, you know, holy F, I think this could be the start of something, and the record just went bang, 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 bang. Now, you guys played, uh, like, I'm freaking out, Top of the Pops, is that what it is? Now, now, did you watch that a lot as a kid? I mean, is that a big thing to play that if you're from England? Well, um, per, perfect question, because of course we've got a Canadian in the band uh, and we're all British, so let's let's split it up into me and Kevin. So when it came to Top of the Pops, um, it was like Kevin would have seen it on, on Canadian TV, I'm sure, but for me, you know, I'm just nervous as anything because this is what we saw... Rolling Stones and, um, you know, David Bowie and everything like that. It's my turn. And so, but Kevin was as blase as anything, you know, okay, we'll play Top of the Pops. Um, but then Shoe on the Other Foot, when we played Carson, um, you know, I'm like, okay, Johnny, Johnny, I've heard of him. Yeah, let's do this. <laughs> Kevin is throw, Kevin's throwing up in the toilet. <laughs> Because the funny thing is, you know, back then, Carson, if you were on that show, everybody saw it. Because we only had, in the U.S., we only had, what, like in Philadelphia, we only had like seven stations. And everybody watched Carson. And it must have been, you know, it must have helped you out in America just because everyone watched it. Well, yeah. And we, they, they, we had uh, Guy Arms just coming down the charts. And I've been in love before shooting up the charts. So we got a little medley, you know, which is unheard of. Um, I think, I don't want to just, Joe Pesco was on there because it was Johnny's birthday or something. It was something like, I remember getting our hair, you know, when you're getting your hair done before the show, one of the girls saying to Kevin, it's going to be a big one tonight, Kevin. I think about 60, 60, 70 million, they reckon. <laughs> That's when Kevin ran off and threw up. 
<laughs> now, now, you guys, it took you a while to have your uh, the scattering come out. What, was it disputes with management, or what happened? Oh, that was the, that was the killer. Yeah, I mean, if, if that album was you know as good as Abbey Road, or if it was the worst album ever made, what killed Cutting Crew was that that gap. Um, management. Um, 40%, I suppose, we tried to get some American management on the side and British management, you know, didn't want to shift. But more than that was the, that precious thing, you know, I mean, I, dear God, Virgin, I love you because you gave me so many opportunities, but when we, when we, when we delivered the second album, it was like, yeah, okay, we, this is a great album, we can hear maybe, and there were three AOR number one radio hits on that, you know, nobody really knows or cares and who, who would care, but they wanted that big, you know, they, they did, one of the publishers actually said it to me once and I nearly punched him in the face, you know, I, I re- really like this album, but we're not hearing that guide in your arms, and I was thinking, fuck, you know, what do we have to do, and so we we went back and tried more songs, we tried more songs, so I think it was about, what, a year and a half, and then you're dead, and by then all this urban, fantastic urban uh, dance music was coming in, you know, and within, you'll remember those times, within a year and a half, two years, the music business had moved on from um, our kind of music, you know, and everything that that means, to, to some gorgeous new bands, which were much cooler, much more colourful, um, uh, uh, you know, excited, come on, it was the new, it was, it was the 90s. Now, is that what led to the breakup just because, you know, and the music industry did change so much, you know, and, and you're right. And it must be hard because the music that you guys were making and on the other bands that were popular in the 80s was still good music. But when the whole narrative changes, MTV changes, and it was crazy. Is that why you guys broke up just for the fact that you were saying we're not going to work this way anymore? A little bit. I mean, there was no rows. Everybody loved each other. Everybody loved each other. Um, it was a kind of... Uh, I got really bitter. We, we made a third album, um, which, you know, I, I, I don't care what anybody thinks is listening to this. And I'm sure so many of your other interviews have said it, you know, some of my best songs. But it doesn't matter, because by then, the, the world has moved on, the momentum has moved on, and I understood that. But I despised the fact that the record company paid me, um, I don't mind telling you, I think it was £80,000 back then, you know, it's a lot of money, kept the album and never released it. And I said, well, here's your money, take your money, just give me my songs back. And they're like, oh, no, no, we don't, we don't work like that. We'd rather just sit on your songs and do fuck all with them, you know. Um, and that really upset me because you're... you're it, it, it just it just seems immoral, and you know why? It's because they damn think that if they gave me that album back and I got a song on the new Tom Hanks album, you know, they would that guy would be fired. So he plays it safe and kills two years of your life's work. You know that is that is such bullshit. That happens a lot with actors I know, where they're being on a TV show and they 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 get paid, but they never they never air it. And then no one else can see their work, and they're in a contract. They can't get another job because, in case they need a mid-season replacement, they can put that show on, and they still have that the contractual obligations to that guy. And it's really hard. It's really hard how it's you know if something where the performers it's are such artists and are doing bringing from a 
point of passion and that, you know, entertainment companies and, and record companies, it's all about the money. Yeah. It is, you know, I've noticed it. You've noticed it, but I've noticed it. You know, I was, I was a professional recording artist at 18 years old, so I've seen the changes. And some, some of it is quite exciting. Um, I remember Steve Earle. I, I hope you haven't heard this quote, but I'll say it anyway. One of my best favorite quotes ever. About 10 years ago, Steve Earle saying, you know, in that voice, you know, I think the music business is um, uh, one of the most exciting things in the world. There's so many changes, you know. Um, the really great thing about the music business is that anybody can put music out there now and uh, maybe get signed. And he said, do you know what the worst thing about the music business is? Anybody can put music out there. <laughs> 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 and that's because there's so much stuff now. There's mountains of stuff. And... Uh, you know, it's, it's great. Let, let, let it take you by the hand, but you sometimes have to wait for a lot of now, now, after you guys broke up and you said you were a little bit bitter, how do you rebound from that? What do you do to sit there and not have a jaded view? Because it, it happens. You know, it's like anything. If you have a great product and they fuck it up, you know, you're going to be pissed. You're going to be jaded. How do you rebound? How did you rebound and get yourself in a new position where you said, you know what? I'm a musician. I'm good. I've had a number one hit. I've sold three million albums. What? How do you bring yourself back to that mind frame that you know you're going to kick ass again? Well, Kevin, immediately, um, on the last album, the third album, Compass Mentis, he'd already started to make friends with Phil Johnston, who was half producing it. And so within months of us splitting up, and, and I was delighted to say that he went off and joined the Robert Plant Band and played on Fader Nations and toured with Robert for a couple of years. So, so my best friend was doing great. It was the funniest thing, Steve, to see Skinny Kevin with his, um, with not, not with his chicken chest, you know, with the medallion and the gummy and the shirt wide open. And of all things, playing a Gibson and not a Fender. It was wonderful. <laughs> da -da, da -da, da -da. That's such a great name. That's a, and I, I've met a lot of people in production companies. I've never heard that name. That's one of a kind. So, so you're sitting there and you're you're writing songs. Who are some of the people you wrote songs for? Um, do you know the British rock band Marillion? Yeah. Yeah, I wrote a couple with them. Um, the, of course, when you when people say they want to ride with you and you tell them that you're living in Barbados, it's it's amazing how many people suddenly want to ride with you. <laughs> <laughs> Mika. Um, so, yeah, it was, you know, one 
stuck and, and it paid the bills and I was living in paradise with my young daughter growing up and, you know, fireflies and uh, whistling frogs and, um, uh, what's the music, excuse me, uh, soca, soca music uh, was the thing there, kind of crossed between samba and you know, it's funny, you just mentioned fireflies. And I grew up in New Jersey, and I lived in L.A. for many years, and there wasn't fireflies. But in New Jersey, in the Philadelphia area, we called them lightning bugs. Ah, uh, yeah. They are very, very, very mesmerizing, actually. Um, but, you know, I I want to flip back, and I'll wind this up in a minute, but I, I, I want to flip back to the bit that I told you about when... People's, people's, you know, a couple of years of your work are wasted. Well, that sounds rather self-important. My work, you know, just a couple of years of my work. When I split up with Chaz many years ago, you know, he sat on my contract for a year and a half. Well, it's not just your work, it's your life, you know. We're only on here if we're lucky for 70 years. And when you are basically sat on, when you can't do anything, what you can do, you can work from home, but you can't do anything because of some contract, that's the bit that killed me and forever and ever makes me very angry. And that's what I hope that the new music industry, with a much more home-based, not having to sign up to you know, huge deals, just have self-control, um, autonomy. Um, I hope that that would never happen to anybody because that was the most strangling feeling in my life when all you want to do is get out there. You're, you're in your prime. You might be you know, 35 years old, singing at the best you've ever sung. And... Um, you're, you're stuck at home. I know we're going over familiar ground, but um, that would be my one advice to any youngster coming in the industry. Don't don't trust the experts and don't sign anything until you have to. Well, you know, I know you have to go, but before you do, I want to ask you, can you tell me real quick about the Genesis audition? Because I grew up as a fan of Genesis, and I'm sure you were, you listened to them. How did that come about? Oh, yeah. Well, it's one of those... Well, it's great, you know. We'll all go in the book one day, won't it? <laughs> um, it when I was a teenager, I worshipped um, more Peter than the band. I mean, you know, I was just starstruck by him. There was nobody like him. I saw them play that, uh, the album, um, The Light Genesis Live with Watcher of the Skies as the first track. I was at that gig, um, but I didn't even know it was being recorded. And I was probably 14, you know, so not even you know, able to drive or anything. Probably my dad drove me up. So, besotted, um, one day I come back down from the bathroom and sit in the semi-lit, flickering TV of the lounge with my mum and dad, and my mum looks over and she goes, Oh, my God! And I've shaved my hair right down the front like Peter Gabriel. <laughs> That's great big, what, three, three inch, right the way back, half of the back of the head. <laughs> she said, you'll be sorry. And of course, I went to school the next day and everybody said, oh, cool, Nick, look at him, he's got his Peter Gabriel hair. About two months later, it's growing back like a cockerel. <laughs> <laughs>
future cutting crew. should do that because once we come back there's nothing you know you are a good storyteller and you are a good musician and there's nothing better than you know for us who grew up going to huge concert shows now when you go see a a a band that you really liked or the person from the band in an intimate venue 
it's so good when they just tell stories. Like, I went to see Grant Parker was on my show, and wow. he, he comped me for two shows at a very small record store right before his tour. And I went, and it was like 40 people. And he was doing it because he was already in America. And it was just such an amazing experience. Like you with your stories, it would be just such an amazing experience. You should look into that. I think it's the future for, for the immediate future, you know, for bands of my size. And I'll finish up with one story where, where I know it works. And, and again, one of those things that I just wish, God, I wish there'd been a video recorder there. But we were playing in, in Weimar, which is in the old East Germany, old communist Germany, in a hall that was the communist hall. So this is now Germany, you know, back together, unified. And um, when we got there, was, we could just tell as soon as we arrived, the, the support band were the PA company and the support band were the promoter. And it was, you know, it was six, seven hundred people turned up, but the PA was literally exploding in front of our eyes. Um, and so they played their show through the explosions. And when Cutting Crew walked on, I just said, ladies and gentlemen, can you give me 10 minutes, please? We're not going to carry on like this. Would you all, because the Germans are really good at this, would you all organize your your seats into a circle and we'll come down and sit in the middle and we came down sat in the middle Tom guitar um, brought his cajon now no uh, PA at all and we just found 500 people in like a little circus and it was one of the most beautiful memorable gigs I've ever done with the stories up close and personal that's awesome man so I hope that happens because you guys are great and the new the new box set is out and people go buy it the uh the website is cuttingcrew.org. So go check them out. Go listen to their music. Buy their albums. That's all I'm saying. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 800 episodes. Email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. So please go buy the box set from the cuttingcrew.org. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. That was one.